When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello, and welcome to Awesome Etiquette, where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on thanking coworkers for personal help, being addressed by your spouse's name, Tupperware etiquette, and leaving messes in your friend's car. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, we talk about sending thank you notes after a funeral. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript segment on teaching manners to kids. All that coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Cindy Post-Senning. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. And Lizzie Post is nowhere to be found. (laughs) No, she's had the opportunity to go off on vacation, and I'm glad for it because it gives me the opportunity to be here with you at Awesome Etiquette. Well, Lizzie Post, I hope you're enjoying your visit to Martha's Vineyard with your parents and... Please say hi to Peter and Tricia for us and just know that we're having a great time back here. But we also listened to you and Peter do your show a couple weeks ago. So I really was – I don't want to say looking forward to Lizzie's vacation time, but I was a little bit because I get to invite my mother, Cindy Post-Senning, to come do this show. And you've done this show before, but I don't know if we've done it together in – a little while. It's been a couple years if, if we even had that opportunity. Yeah, I think so. Back when you were having babies and getting married and took some time available, I've done the show with Lizzie a couple of times, but it's extra special for me to be able to do it with you. We live very near to each other, and we spend a fair amount of time talking etiquette. We talk just the way we used to when um, Peter and I used to get together at the Institute and and talk etiquette. Uh, What's an interesting question we've had? What's a dilemma somebody's facing? How would you answer this. I can remember my mother coming downstairs when she wrote her first revision of the etiquette book saying, which fork should I have them use? And I was like, (laughs) what? (laughs) I couldn't believe it. It was fun. But it has been a family tradition, parent to child for a long time. And um, I'm glad to continue that tradition. Well, it's certainly nice to have you so close by, both as a resource professionally and also as a resource personally. You play a really large role in my and Pooja's life, raising Anisha and now Aria. And it is such a treat to see you in that context and to watch you emerge as a grandparent. I've known you as a parent my whole life, and it's been so much fun to learn from you and to also watch you now interact with your granddaughters. And learning to be a grandparent, you know, it's a different skill. It's a little different than that parenting skill. So I get to be a grandparent now to not just your two daughters, but my other two granddaughters who also live in the same community that we live in. And it's just um, – it's very interesting. It's an interesting challenge to be a grandparent, but mostly it's just great fun. And um, all those people who talk about if I'd known grandparenting was such a good deal, I'd have had grandchildren children first. Uh, There's some truth to that saying. As is often true with our cliches. We say them all the time because they're true. They have a certain degree of (laughs) truth to them. Right, right. You gave me some of the best life advice I ever got many, many, many years ago where you said, I think life done well continues to get better. I think that, you know, it's, it's fun to grow up. It's fun to go from elementary school to junior high to high school It's fun to leave home and discover yourself as an adult. It's fun to meet a partner. It's fun to have kids. It's fun to raise kids. It's fun to watch your kids grow up and go through all those stages. And 
you took great pleasure and joy in each of those life stages as they continued to unfold. And I can only imagine that the grandparent stage is also a lot of fun. It definitely is. It definitely is. Well, we're not here to just have fun. We're also here to answer some listener questions. Shall we get to giving some etiquette advice? Sure. I think that'd be great. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. If you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail or text us at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. On Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media post so we know you want your question on the show. Sustaining members. Remember to put sustaining member in your message. We'll answer your questions on the sustaining member site where you can access an ads-free version of the show and all your bonus questions. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, Mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com slash manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. So, Dan, the first question here is called Coworker Etiquette. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. I enjoy listening to your show during long commutes to work. I never knew how much I didn't know about etiquette. I appreciate how kind and gentle you are with your instruction. My question involves etiquette at work. A coworker who is widely respected and well-liked recently was hospitalized with a very serious but treatable illness. She expects to make a full recovery, but will be out for some time. Several co-workers and members of our board of directors asked how they could help, so I was asked to suggest monetary donations, enabling us to purchase helpful things like groceries and Uber gift cards to get her to doctor appointments. I don't know whether this co-worker, while one of the most caring and thoughtful people you can imagine, will think to send thank you notes to the board members. Are they necessary for this type of gift? If so, is there an appropriate timeline? I certainly wouldn't want to burden her during her recovery by asking if she has sent them and feel like it might be judgy to do so. Should I do it since I have been the person to communicate about the illness and donations? Is that overstepping my involvement? Help. Help. Well, we hope that we have an answer that will help in this situation. Great. First of all, I want to applaud you for your work facilitating this from the beginning. This can be a really 
tough time for someone when they're out of work, when they're dealing with an illness, obviously. And getting support from friends and family and from coworkers and the businesses and the companies and the organizations that hire us is really important. In fact, you couldn't get through it without that support. What you're describing is something that's a little above and beyond just giving someone the time that they need to recover. You're talking about people who are making gifts and donations out of their own resources and finances and figuring out how to thank those people appropriately is definitely something that you as a facilitator for this kind of thing can and I would even say should be thinking about. It's important to thank people who've helped in in any kind of charitable giving situation, whether it's close and personal or whether it's for a larger organization. How you do it starts to get a little bit trickier because there there is some subtle ground to tread and that's where the question gets interesting. One of the, the first thoughts that I had was that you could try to make it easier for the recipient, for the person who's missing the time, who's out sick, to know who's contributed by sharing with them any information that you have about who made donations and what they were and – if that also included addresses for those people, it would make it even easier for them to be thanked. And anything that you can do that makes that process easier for the person on whose behalf you're operating here, I think is good. You could take it a step further and offer to help that person with thank you notes, whether that's getting them supplies or even writing them. But that's a pretty subtle offer that you want to be making. You really don't want to start to be pushy or come across as if you're thinking someone wouldn't do that on their own. And the other caveat I would have about making an offer like that, which can be well-intentioned, and I, I could feel it coming from a good place but not landing and being understood as if it came from that kind of a good place, would be that if they don't accept your offer or pick up on the hint that might be implied in your offer that you're really ready to let it go, that you're not going to push and that you're not then going to take on that judgy mindset yourself, whether you're communicating it or not, that you really are going to give them the time and the space to figure out how they want to proceed and how they want to acknowledge what other people have done. I think your response there raises two questions for me. One of them is providing a, a list of people who contributed can sometimes be awkward for the people who didn't contribute, kind of. It it leaves the um, recipient in a kind of awkward position of trying to uh, say thanks to one person, maybe doing an in-person thanks instead of written thanks and not to other people or feel – I don't know, create kind of an awkward relationship a little bit on the ones who didn't give anything. So you always, uh, you know, on these general kind of group gifty things, it's a little tricky on whether or not you do a whole list. On the other hand, if indeed somebody has given a very special gift, maybe something different from from the rest, you might want to be able to mention that person and their gifts specifically. That puts the recipient in a good place for offering a personal thanks in that case. The other way you can deal with this that I would suggest would be to maybe um, write a thank you note or suggest that your friend, the coworker, write a thank you note to the whole board. It could just go thanks for not only for the gifts that they gave but for the time off and the understanding of this difficult time. It's a way they can do a thanks for all of that in one fell swoop and not be singling some people out. I like that concern that you're showing for not making some people feel like they're bad for not doing it. <laughs> yeah, right. And it wasn't something that I've been thinking about. We we drove in to the show together this morning. So Cindy and I had a chance to talk some about these questions. And when you mentioned that, I thought to myself, boy, that really hadn't occurred to me. And I appreciate that that thinking. I also want there to be room to thank people without that necessarily being a comment on someone who didn't do something. And kind of weighing that, I think, becomes a question of judgment and dosage on the part of the people who are receiving those gifts. And I think if someone's really feeling inspired and appreciative that offering thanks 
doesn't have to be a comment to someone who doesn't get it. And right. that as awkward as it might be to get a list of coworkers where, boy, some people were on that list and some people weren't, <laughs> Yeah, I wouldn't want the concern about someone feeling bad for not giving to prevent someone from saying thank you. Right. And and I again, it is a question of dosage. You don't want to offer that thanks in front of other people, but I think a particularly handwritten note is a personal enough correspondence that it doesn't need to feel like a public comment necessarily. As far as the timing on how long you would have to do something like this, obviously with any thank you note or acknowledgement, the sooner the better. Within a month or two, I think is a good idea because things are still fresh, but you just never know what someone's dealing with having as much as a year in mind for getting out a really significant or substantial handwritten thank you, I think is a very reasonable window Mm -hmm. in terms of using a deadline to hold yourself accountable. But again, I wouldn't take that sort of judgy mindset of watching someone saying, boy, they got two months left before their one year windows up. Right. As always, I think etiquette's most useful when you're using it to judge or assess for yourself what's the right course of action as opposed to using it to criticize someone else. Right. I'd agree with that. I think that makes good sense. Your final question really related to your own actions. Should I do it? Should I do it since I have been the person to communicate about the illness and donations? Is that overstepping my involvement? And it is not overstepping your involvement. Your thank you note is going to read differently than your coworkers because you're thanking people for responding to your request as opposed to her thank you note, which might be responding thanking for the specific gift itself help. I hope this does help and provides you some ways to handle this difficult time for your coworker and for the effort that you've put into it. And they all shared in the work. Then there was more fun for every member of the group. So you learn to share with others. You'll like it. Your friends will like you too. I'm glad my mother's here to help us with this next question. It's titled, Being Addressed as Mrs. Husband's Name. Dear Lizzie and Dan, a friend recently introduced me to your podcast, and I appreciate your perspective. Thank you for your insight and your work on the show. You helped me approach the world as a more considerate, respectful, and honest person. I have an etiquette question that I'm hoping you can help with. I love mail and send and receive many cards and letters. I got married a year and a half ago and have noticed a change in the way correspondence is addressed to me. Several members of my family now address mail using Mrs. and my husband's full name, e.g. Mrs. John Doe. I recognize that there is likely a generational difference at play, though it rankles my feminist slightly. While I took my husband's name, I have chosen to use Ms. and not Mrs., though do not begrudge anyone who makes a different choice. I know they mean it as a form of respect, and I choose to receive it in the spirit in which it is intended. However, it now has me second-guessing how I address items to them. My habit is to address things using first and last name only, no honorific, e.g. Jane Doe. Is this an acceptable form? Does the type of correspondence influence this, such as formal invitation versus a casual letter? By not using an honorific, am I dishonoring them? I want to be respectful to them, but also consistent with my values. Can you provide some guidelines on the best etiquette for addressing correspondence? Sincerely, addressing addresses. First, let me say I applaud you for the fact that you are writing and receiving correspondence. It's so nice. It's not just the standard email. You are actually talking about letters that you send to people or invitations or whatever in the written format. I love it. Secondly, let me say that one of your points is that you recognize there's likely a generational difference at play. I may be in the generation you would think would be in one category and you might be in another. I'm guessing that from your letter. Just so you know, I'm probably in the same area that you are. (laughs) I like being called Cindy Senning. That's my name. That's who I am and that's what I feel like. However, I do think that you need to think about what the correspondence is about when you make that decision, that ultimate decision about how you're going to address it. I think there are a couple of different uh, situations in this case. Social 
friend letter, an invitation just to a party over at your house and stuff like that. First name and last name, Cindy Senning is perfect. Uh, that has no obligation to be using an honorific as far as I'm concerned. For business correspondence, I think it's important that you do use an honorific and I would suggest using the one that has been kind of created for this very purpose, the MS or Ms. I think works well. In business, you want to be addressing the person by their name, not by their husband's name for sure and Ms. Cindy Senning works well for that. I also have a situation in which I have a doctorate and I use my doctorate only for business purposes. It is not a social name. People don't call me Dr. Senning on a regular basis. But on business correspondence relating to education world, which is where my doctorate is, I prefer to be Dr. Senning. I feel kind of good when I get that and uh, I worked hard for that and um, it does show some respect and honor for what I accomplished in my business world. I would never use doctor in my social world. It's just not the same thing. What about social correspondence that start to be more formal? I'm thinking about the obvious example, a wedding invitation, but maybe a a really significant, a 40th, a 50th birthday party where there's a party at a club, say, and, and people are going to be wearing dresses and jackets. Sure. So on the other hand, to set a more formal tone, use the more formal honorific title. So titles are one thing. We can have some choice, some latitude in terms of social correspondence, using them or not to kind of set that that tone. It's nice to obviously have them as an option for business. For me, the trickier question is about when to use a husband's name. And I keep going back to that really core etiquette idea, which is that you address people the way they want to be addressed. And if I found myself in a situation where I was receiving a lot of correspondence from people who were addressing me in this fashion, in this manner, and it started to make me wonder if they would like to be addressed in this manner, I would ask. And I would use the the exact same opportunity and challenge that's presented in this question to make the ask. I would say, you know, since I got married, I've been getting a lot of cards that are addressed to me like this. And some of them came from you. I was wondering, would you like me to address you like that when I send cards? It can be a simple ask. It can be a light ask. It doesn't need to be a heavy or big deal. But if there's a question in your mind about how to address someone, oftentimes the best way to decide what to do is to ask them because there there are a couple of really valid options or choices. It's okay to use the husband's name. It's okay to use someone's given name. The question of the title use I think is more up to you but in terms of the name that you call someone, you really want to be sure that you're calling them the name they want to be called. That's a point that I make often when I talk about names and, and who should be using what name with what person. I think that's really important. I also think the other thing is that then it's very important that you be respectful of their choice. So if you say to someone, say, in my generation, and they say they want to be Mrs. John Senning, then you should be respectful of that. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not anti-feminist. It's just what it is. I think that um, it's important to be respectful of what people want to be called, that's all, and to do it in a way that is not demeaning or putting them down in any way. The other point I wanted to make that I don't think I made uh, sufficiently is that Ms. MS really has become an honorific title in its own right. Um, it's not just in business use. You can use it in social use for people who, uh, who would prefer that. It's, um, it's really perfectly reasonable and is used all the time and across the board in different situations at this point in time. And I think it simplifies this whole question of what to use and what title to use. Emily Post herself had an approach to social relationships that said sometimes stripping away some formality was a way to show the closeness or the intimacy of a relationship. Mm -hmm. So in terms of Showing proper honor and respect, I think thinking about titles is important. I think it's also to pair that in your mind with a question about intimacy and 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 how close you are with someone because sometimes that feeling of formality can interrupt that feeling of closeness. It can be really nice to receive a card from someone who's just 
addressed you by your first name. It feels familiar and comfortable and close. And if that's the feeling that you're looking for, I think it's worth having that as an ideal in mind also as you approach your correspondence. Someday when I come back, I would very much like to talk about the whole issue of names and what we call people. It's it's regional. It's different around the country. Do kids call adults with their honorific title or by their first name? Kids used to call their parents by their honorific title. It just changes. It's an interesting topic and someday maybe we can talk about it. For now, addressing addresses, we hope this helps. You know, Nora, that's not bad at all. With a little practice, you'll be a wizard writing letters. Thanks, Walter. You know, writing letters is just a talent. Some people are born with it, some aren't. I'm glad you appreciated my help. So I love this third question. I love all the questions that you get on this show, Dan. They're all, they all bring up things that are important. This one's titled, Bring Your Own Tupperware? Question mark. Hello, Dan and Lizzie. My parents-in-law like to host large family lunches or dinners. They generously offer the leftovers to their kids to take home. But there's always an issue with the availability of take-home containers. I've seen my mother-in-law's Tupperware supply dwindle over the years, even though I've always made a concerted effort to return any container that is not mine. And now she simply wraps up the food in foil or plastic for us to take home. The food wrapped in foil or plastic is environmentally wasteful and sometimes spills out even before we get it home. I feel that bringing my own container would be presumptuous, as I don't want to appear that I expect anything from an already lovely event. I thought of perhaps saying that I conveniently have a container left in the car, but this could only pass as convincing maybe once, so this is no real solution. Please, can you shed some light on how to handle this situation? I don't want to sound like I'm expecting takeout. You've said in some podcasts that we should mention if we'd like to hear our questions answered on the podcast. So this is me mentioning it. Thank you. Kind regards. Uh, We're more than happy to answer this question in many ways because it sounds so familiar. I can't tell you how many times Pooja and Anisha and I have walked just down the road to my lovely mother's house and had a delicious dinner. And my father or mother have been, oh, would you like to take some of this home? We have so much. Maybe you'd like to take some of this with you. It it, um, feels very familiar, this situation that you're describing here. Um, I also understand how that Tupperware supply can dwindle over time, even when people are making their absolute best efforts. It's like those socks that continuously go missing in the dryer despite your best effort to account for them. They just seem to disappear. It happens. So what do you do about it? I think that your awareness of what I like to call the host-guest dance is really admirable. It is true that you don't want to show up as if you're expecting the generosity of your host to include sending home food for you. It, it, It is a line that's maybe just past a line that you would want to cross. At the same time, practicality is the heart of good etiquette, and I can understand an impulse to want to be prepared and to want to avoid the inconvenience of foil or plastic wrap or the environmental cost of foil or plastic wrap, that bringing a glass container or Tupperware container appeals to you for a number of reasons and is really just about being prepared for a likely eventuality. So with those two competing ideas in my mind, I'm going to ask my mother for the idea that she mentioned in the car on our drive here because I thought it was a good one. Exactly. I think that you respond to this issue talking to your mother or mother-in-law at a time that you're not doing a dinner where there's leftovers being sent home or where you're expecting there might be leftovers sent home. I think just when you're down or visiting or over there in the afternoon, you can bring it up as a topic. You can say, you know how much we appreciate your sharing those leftovers with us. It is great the next day when we have lunch ready to go. Thank you so much. And I've been thinking about the fact that you have to use your leftover containers all the time to send that home with you. Would it be helpful if we provided you with a bunch of leftover containers just to have in your cabinet? 
that's one thing. And then just as Dan was responding to this a little bit, um, I also was thinking that you might very well just bring back a bunch of those leftover containers at another time, just when you come by. Sometimes Dan or Pooja come by with a bunch of leftover containers, and I am always so glad to get them and tuck them right back into my cabinet where they are. It's not part of the dance of the actual leftovers themselves. It's just a way of showing that you have some appreciation and some understanding of the issue. I like that idea of doing it when it's not happening in the moment, that you mention it at a different time that so that it's, it, it doesn't become something that's in any way confusing or fraught in the moment and maybe isn't even happening in front of the other siblings. The other siblings. <laughs> Who knows who's more or less responsible for the slow dwindling supply of these leftover containers, but if someone had any sort of lingering guilt about their role in that, you might not want to bring it up. And again, these are these are not the most serious problems you could have, but an awareness of some of the different dynamics that are at play in sibling relationships, in parent-child relationships. People sometimes get hurt feelings for all kinds of reasons. So I think that idea of doing it at a different time is one idea. I think you could also even ask if you didn't want to make a gift out of more Tupperware or if they didn't want more Tupperware in their kitchen, say, would it be helpful if I brought along a container that we could put leftovers in? And they might say, absolutely, that would make things so much easier. Then there'd be no returning it. We could just load you up and see you next time. If I was going to do that, I would maybe even make mention of it to the other siblings yeah. so they could do something Along the same line, if I was going to do a gift of a set of Tupperware without asking them to chip in, if the opportunity presented itself, I might mention it to another sibling if they wanted to contribute or wanted to be part of that setup and that preparation for next time. If they're sort of a, a co-user of the resource, they might appreciate that. I think the important thing is is that you that you don't make a big deal of it one way or another. It's something you mention, you know, sometime when you're there. It's a way for you to express your appreciation if you do take that opportunity to talk about it. It's your way for you to say, you know, we really do appreciate so much when you give us those leftovers. I love that point. I think it's a really important one that if you can frame this whole discussion within the larger idea of how thankful you are. It yeah. puts the perfect tone on it and really makes any outcome likely to work better. Exactly. As a parent who's often in this situation, I would like to thank you for mentioning this and giving us the opportunity to mention it on our show. Do you know what we mean by sharing? Do you know what kinds of things we share? Do you know why we share and how we share? Let's find out. Our next question is about paying to clean my friend's car. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I was wondering what the best course of etiquette is for scenarios similar to the following. Recently, three of my friends and I all went on a beach trip, and my friend, let's refer to him as John for purposes of this question, offered to drive. The beach was about a 10-minute drive from where we were staying. A few days later, my friend contacted me complaining that some of my sunscreen had rubbed off on his leather seats and requested that I come clean the interior of the car. He said that if I was unsuccessful at cleaning the sunscreen out, he would have his interior detailed with a special leather conditioning treatment and that he would send me the bill. Is this acceptable? Luckily, I managed to clean the car to reach his standards, so I don't anticipate footing a heavy leather conditioning bill. But that could always change if he thinks I missed a spot. A few years ago, a friend brought her dog into my car and it urinated all over the back seat. I didn't think to charge my friend at the time. Should I have charged her? I paid about $60 for a basic car cleaning. And since then, I have adopted a no dogs allowed policy in my car. I would have liked to charge her for the cleaning, but I had figured that I had accepted responsibility for the possibility that the dog would mess up my car when I allowed it in there. I feel like I don't even want to go into friends' cars anymore without having them sign a waiver, which is obviously unrealistic, but I don't want to fall into the trap of always being the driver. What are your thoughts? Thank you, and I look forward to catching up on your most recent podcast during my long drive today. Smiles, Anonymous. Well, Anonymous, 
My first reaction when Dan read this letter to me on our drive-in today was, no, you certainly are not responsible for paying for the detailing and the cleaning. I think that that in and of itself was not a gesture that I would say fell into my etiquette lexicon. I do think that this raised some questions that we wanted to think about. The first one is that I often hear Dan and Lizzie talking about the host guest dance in general. And this is in essence the same thing. The owner of the car is hosting, in a sense, the others who are riding in that car with them. And I do not think there is an expectation that the guests pay for something that happens while they're in your house or in this case in your car. That to me seems so straightforward that it was like this was an easy answer. But in a way, it's not an easy answer. There are a couple of things that maybe could happen or that you could do that would sort of mitigate the situation. You don't want to end up losing a good friend over an issue like this. Perhaps you would be in a situation of offering to share the cost of some kind of damage that might have occurred as a result of your actions. Oh, I didn't realize that my sunscreen was, you know, was going to cause a problem on on the leather seats. That's terrible. And please let me know what it cost and I would be glad to share that cost with you. That would be one way you could handle that situation. And the final point that I'd like to make about this is that you don't have to agree. John, I'm sorry that happened. It didn't occur to me that that this was going to cause a problem on your seats. If you had warned me about that, I'd feel differently. I really think we share some responsibility and it's in that spirit that I'd be willing to split the cost with you. I think that pretty much sums it up. You, as a host, really shouldn't be asking guests to pay for things. So there's some bad etiquette right off the bat here. But it's also pretty good etiquette for a guest who thinks they're responsible for something to offer to help. That's a really reasonable thing for a guest to do. There is a lot of middle ground where the host might want to let somebody know because they might not know that their sunscreen damaged the car. You might not even be aware that that happened. So if the host didn't tell you, you never have the chance to make the offer. So there might be sort of a sensitive or careful sharing of that information that's the beginning steps of a host guest dance as a guest you might feel more or less responsible for something based on all kinds of factors you were really being careless and you broke something that you shouldn't have broken versus i had no idea that sunscreen could damage a leather interior of the car if anyone had even mentioned it to me i'd feel more responsible but i i I don't because i never got a warning I think that it's that gray area in between territory where the good host guest dance happens. I like the script that you gave us where you're acknowledging a willingness to split some cost. You're looking at how that cost splitting is informed by the degree to which you feel responsible for the mistake. I think all those things are are good things to have in mind when you're thinking about how to navigate the in-betweens of – no, you don't ask or yes, you offer to pay the whole thing and and the outcomes that could come up in between those two extremes. Right. And I think the host, in this case the car owner, might even in really the spirit of good etiquette would say, oh, no, of course not. And then knows now – Of course, not that you have to pay, but that host now knows that it's important to protect his leather seats of his car, like bring a bunch of extra towels and let everybody know. Say, you know, that sunscreen just wrecks havocs on my leather seats. And could you please spread these towels out so we don't get the sunscreen on the seats? End of story. Or if somebody brings their dog, same kind of a thing. You have a couple of options. You can say, I have a no dog policy, like you said, was that something I should do? Or you can say, whenever I have other people's dogs in my car, since I don't have a dog or whatever, you're going to put some special kinds of covers on your seats, on your very special seats. If you had somebody that you invited to your house, one of the things I always tell people is don't use something or do something that you don't want to risk it being broken. So you don't use your very finest china that can never be replaced in a situation where you think it might be broken. Same deal for the car. You know, cover those leather seats or whatever. A beach trip is likely to involve a little bit of sand, (laughs) a little bit of sunscreen, maybe some salt water. (laughs) No, this, this thinking ahead, this thinking to the future and 
thinking about ways you can take responsibility as a host, I think is a, a definite yeah. etiquette takeaway here. Yeah, I think so too. Anonymous, we hope that you are able to drive with friends in the future because you shouldn't be responsible for everything that happens in every car you ever get into. And we want you to continue to enjoy trips to the beach. I don't like that guy. Why doesn't he pick on Fred Smith or somebody's old age? Why are you always running around with him? Oh, I don't know. Are you afraid of him? Who, me? Me afraid of him? Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates, comments, or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On social media, we are at Emily Post Institute on Instagram, Awesome Etiquette on Facebook, and at Emily Post Inst on Twitter. Just use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette in your post so that we know you want your question on the show. Now it's time for our feedback segment, where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. Today, we hear from Ilana. Hello, Lizzie and Dan. Thank you for all you do to make this a more humane and civilized world. And Dan, congratulations on the new baby. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'm writing with a quick suggestion for second wedding gifts. When I got married 24 years ago on July 4th, it was my first and my husband's third wedding. Also, we'd been living together for four years, so really, really didn't need any things. Our extremely generous friends and family gave us experiences instead. All told, we were given nights or weekends at three different country inns, including the Woodstock Inn in Vermont, as well as several very nice gift certificates at local restaurants. Those experiences were so welcome and perfect for the couple who did not need another fondue pot. I hope this helps spark imaginations. All the best, Ileana, Watertown, M.A. What a great suggestion for somebody who does not need another fondue pot. Um, I think it's a lovely idea, and I think giving people permission to do different kinds of wedding gifts is amazing. Thanks so much. And I'm so glad you got to visit Woodstock, Vermont. Thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please do keep them coming. You can send your next comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Or you can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to take advantage of having my favorite parent in the whole world – I know you listen to this show too, Dad, so I'm going to say one of my two favorite parents in the whole world. (laughs) Give us some advice for parents. Mom, please help us out. You've written several books, both for children and for parents and teachers. And if I were to ask you as a relatively new parent for the second time to think about some of your most important advice for parents or teachers who are responsible for teaching manners, what do you think you would say? Let me just start by telling you something you may or may not be familiar with. Back in the late 1990s, I was working as a clinical director at a home health agency where I had just finished establishing a maternal child health program uh, to go along with their other therapeutic care of the sick programs. I had spent all of my professional career either in public schools or in various areas of home health working in maternal child health situations. So I had a fairly extensive background on uh, working with children, on adults and children, teaching children, working together with children. I also had two of my own children at that time and was really ready to start thinking about how that all linked in with my family background in etiquette. So I left my job at Home Health in order to join Peter at the Emily Post Institute and Peggy, our sister-in-law, also at the Emily Post Institute, and begin looking at the topic of teaching etiquette to children, working with parents and teachers on what are the topics that are important and how do we go about teaching kids etiquette. I actually came on board at the Emily Post Institute to write this book about parenting, The Gift of Good Manners. It was my first big project at the Emily Post Institute. So, That all being said, you need to know this is near and dear to my heart, this whole topic area. And the classic 
question that comes about this really does have to do with teaching about manners. How do you teach kids manners? At what age do you teach it and how do you teach it? So I came up with about three bulleted points that helped us think about good teaching practice. The first one is take a look at your child and see where they are developmentally. You're not going to teach a three-year-old or a four-year-old how to use a steak knife, even though using the proper utensil is an important etiquette manner. You can also look at the whole developmental issue in terms of the language you use with your kids. So again, you don't take your six-year-old and talk about appreciative language, language that shows appreciation and stuff. You want to talk about giving thanks. What are some simple words that a six-year-old is going to be able to identify? So look at your kid developmentally. See what it is they think they can handle. That's an important part of teaching. Don't be out of that range. Either too simple or too complex. Exactly. Exactly. Very important both ways. If you go too simple, then you kind of demean the kids in a way. Don't and baby you lose talk their a three-year-old. Right. Exactly. Right. So then the next thing that comes up always is the issue of practicing. In good teaching, you give your student, your pupil, your child the opportunity to practice the skill that you're trying to teach. So if you're trying to teach your kids to have some good greeting skills, greetings and introductions, you may want to set up a practice situation where whenever your neighbor comes over, your child's going to go over and offer to shake hands, assuming that they're the right age developmentally to do that, of course. Um, but you practice. You practice good greetings. You practice shaking hands. You practice saying thank you. You practice saying please. Last night you were upholding Aria and my friend John was visiting and also trying holding Aria. And then Pooja came home with Anisha. And I said, Anisha, do you want to say hi to John boy? Hi, John boy. Right. <laughs> practice, practice, practice to develop the skill well and appropriately. And then finally, the third thing is, is that I tell people to repeat. And people say, repeat, isn't that the same as practice? Well, indeed, it is not. <laughs> you, once you've gained that skill and you have it down just right through lots of practice, you may have to repeat it a gazillion times. Parents will say to me, how often do I have to tell them to say please? Well, you have to tell them to say please as often as it takes for it to become a habit. When it becomes something that they just do naturally and out of habit, then you've probably repeated it enough. So the repetition is really about habit forming. Yes, exactly. So, so practice is about learning the skill, perfecting the skill, and repetition is habit forming. You I, want them to say please automatically. I, I love you answering a question with another question. So how long do I have to do this? How many times do I have to do this? Well, let me ask you. Are, is your child doing it yet? Right. <laughs> you do it until they are. It's a similar answer to the question of at what age do I do this or when do I start doing this? And the answer being, well, when they're ready, <laughs> right. when they're capable of acquiring that skill. You know, I love that question. When do you start teaching manners? Because I say you can start teaching it when, you're, when your child is an infant. Think about your 10-month-old. You're teaching them table manners already as they wave that spoon in the air, which is simply they're beginning to understand that spoons are utensils or tools for eating. And you don't expect your child to be able to scoop up the cereal and get it into their mouth cleanly and neatly, but they will wave that spoon around and they'll begin to associate that spoon with eating and table manners. It's the very first. Bibs are first napkins. Uh, I can give you a gazillion things you do with your infant or young child um, that are the beginnings of table manners. My favorite piece of advice that I've heard you give about early table manners is that as a parent, you start to hold yourself accountable to putting down your phone and spending that time where you share food together as social time, that you start to be that parent that is the model for what your child's going to become. And But that begins at a preconscious and, level. And you and your partner have to make some decisions and establish your own habits 
of behavior that will set the culture in your home that will surround that baby and they will begin to absorb that culture. So when you speak with your husband and you say please and thank you or with your wife and you make nice offers, generous offers to help with something, that creates a climate or an atmosphere of respect and consideration that, believe it or not, that baby begins to absorb. Think of the baby in a quiet home where things are said with great respect and honesty and consideration. And often that's a calmer kind of a time for that baby than if we're all hollering at each other and creating a difficult situation. Well, it's a good reminder for me (laughs) as I navigate a home with a one-month-old and a -a two-and-a-half-year-old. The stricter discipline of childhood has given place to friendly guidance for the in-between years. Of course, having understanding parents doesn't eliminate all the problems, but it goes a long way towards lessening the tensions that give to early adolescence its name, the age of turmoil. We do like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we have Shesha. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. I've been thinking about this for a while, but your call for etiquette salutes recently prompted me to actually write in. I have two children, currently three and a half and one and a half, so daycare drop-off is always a bit challenging, to put it mildly. Between the preschooler who wants to run, the toddler who wants to assert her independence, and bags full of nap supplies, I have my hands full. It was especially challenging over the winter, we live in southern Ontario, and during the polar vortex, which seemed to last forever, it was difficult to manage everything while trying to keep our time outside in the freezing cold to a minimum, since snowsuits are a big no in car seats. This salute is to the father of one of my son's classmates. We seemed to arrive at daycare at around the same time for about a two-week stretch, and every day as he was heading back to his car after dropping off his son, he would come over to where I was wrangling the kids and either grab a kid or the bags and head right back inside so that I could more easily manage hurrying inside where it was warm. It saved us maybe two minutes of being outside, but when it's 30 degrees below... Two minutes is a big deal. It was so kind of him to stop and help when he didn't have to, and I really appreciated it. We've since become friends with both parents, and our sons will be off to kindergarten together this fall. I'm even more grateful to have such kind people in our lives and in our son's life. Thank you. That is such a nice etiquette salute. As a parent who watches that pick up and drop off, Every day at the daycare and knows what a scene it can be and is just imagining what minus 30 degrees Celsius polar vortex on top of that must feel like. Yeah. Um, what a remarkable salute. And I, I hope that you're able to share your salute with this true gentleman. I hope so, too. Thank you for listening. Thank you, everyone who sent us something. Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, and on social media. You can send us your next question, comment, or salute by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, you can leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst and at Lizzie A. Post. That's Lizzie with an I-E. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and Emily Post Institute. And on Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. Bridget.